Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and what would Alfred Hitchcock Presents be without murder? We've encountered all kinds of murderers already in the show. Revenge murderers thinking they were doing the right thing, murderers who don't even know they're murderers, murderers suspected of murder years before they become murderers, even murderers who end up murdering murderers. But this is the first time we are encountering a murderer who thinks he can commit the perfect murder. Let's see how he does in tonight's episode, The Perfect Murder. Now, The Perfect Murder is not to be confused with A Perfect Murder, the 1998 film starring Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow, which is loosely based on Dial M for Murder, the play by Frederick Knott. The basis, of course, for Hitchcock's 1954 film of the same name. That's not happiness to see me, is it? Try surprise. I had an unexpected hole in my schedule, and I thought lunch with my beautiful wife would be indicated. I guess you have other plans. What makes you say that? You seem in such a hurry. No, it's just, it's just errands. Like shopping for a new wedding ring. You know, one of the settings felt a bit loose, so I just took it in, but it'll be ready tomorrow. And what if there were no tomorrow? What does that mean? Wouldn't you regret not having one last lunch with your husband? Of course. The perfect murder is also not to be confused with the perfect crime, something that I have already done in a previous episode, but which is episode three of season three of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, starring Vincent Price and James Gregory and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I tried to be out of the state when all four of them were killed. Executed, my friend, by due process of the law and the inevitable grinding of the mills of the Almighty. Now that we've got that all straightened out, let's get right to it. I may be setting a personal best here for getting right to it. Here's Hitch with a knife between his shoulder blades, which we can see because he starts with his back turned to us. After he faces us, he still winces and grimaces and shrugs as if he's not quite sure what the problem is. Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Hollywood. I think everyone enjoys a nice murder, provided he is not the victim. Well, tonight's little comedy of bad manners is concerned with that dream of all of us who harbor homicidal tendencies, the perfect murder. Of course, to be serious for a moment, there is no such thing as a nice murder or a perfect murder. It is always a sordid, despicable business, especially if you don't have a good lawyer. I like the very pointed Welcome to Hollywood reference. Now that's where my DVD edition peters out. But according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, there's more. After Hitch says, It is always a sordid, despicable business especially if you don't have a good lawyer. He continues with, According to statistics, a murder will be committed during the next 60 seconds, as well as four armed robberies, 33 petty thefts, and a forgery. There will also be a television commercial. If you doubt me, watch. So here's The Perfect Murder, first broadcast on March 11, 1956 starring Herd Hatfield and Mildred Natwick. Teleplay by Victor Wolfson, B. 
based on a story by Stacy Aumonier and directed by Robert Stevens. I'm sure Robert Stevens is familiar to all of us by now. This is his ninth episode. His last was Place of Shadows, just two episodes ago. His other seven were Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, and Shopping for Death. He has 35 more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and five more Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. His next is Portrait of Jocelyn, episode number 28. Victor Wolfson, on the other hand, is new to us. This is his first of six teleplays for the show. Victor's parents, Adolf and Rebecca, were political radicals who emigrated from Russia in 1894 to escape anti-Semitism and political persecution. His sister Teresa was an economist and a prolific writer. Victor himself began his career organizing acting clubs for striking coal miners in West Virginia. It wasn't long after that that he made the leap to writing and established himself as a Broadway playwright. Many of his plays were adaptations of other people's novels, such as his 1935 production of Crime and Punishment. But he also wrote novels of his own, none of which have stood the test of time. He also began writing for television, of course, with eight episodes of Suspense and two episodes of Climax, along with his Hitchcock episodes. He also wrote the Gathering Storm episode for Winston Churchill, The Valiant Years, which won him an Emmy for Outstanding Writing Achievement in the Documentary Field. We'll see him again with The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby, episode number 29. And Victor Wolfson died in 1990 in a fire at his home. His obituary in the New York Times says, A spokesman for the family said he was either 81 or 82 years old. Our story begins with a close-up of a tray with coffee cups on it, soon to be distributed by Ernestine. This is not an accident that we begin with this tray, because we'll find out that what Ernestine serves is an important part of this story. Now, along with that opening shot, we get narration, which I think is a very strange thing in this episode. The narration really isn't ever needed, and the narrator is neither of our two apparent leads, Paul and Aunt Rosalie, but instead Paul's brother Henri. Yes, that's right, Henri. This episode takes place in France, sometime maybe around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Why does it take place in France? Because Stacy Aumonier's story takes place in France. However, Stacy Aumonier, in spite of his name, is not French, but British. So why does he place the story in France? Good question. But one for which I have no answer. We'll get back to Stacy a little later on. For now, let's get back to Henri's narration, as he introduces us to the characters in this scene. And the camera does his bidding, showing us each character that he names in turn, from the lawyer to Ernestine and so on, until it settles on Aunt Rosalie. Now, as he mentions each character, they take a cup of coffee off the tray. All except the lawyer, who is there for a very specific purpose, and Ernestine, of course. 
so we meet each character as they are served by Ernestine. And this is the motif for this episode. Close-ups of food, drink, or serving dishes, then the camera pulling back to show those imbibing or those planning to. Here's Henri's opening narration. We had gathered to hear the lawyer read my uncle's will. Ernestine was present. She had cooked for my aunt and uncle as long as I can remember. There was my wife, Marie. And myself, my brother Paul, and there was Aunt Rosalie. With Henri leading off the show and introducing us to the characters, with the camera following his lead and showing us the characters, maybe Henri is more important than he appears. In fact, there's one character here whom we get to know, if we get to know her at all, only through Henri's comments, and that is his wife, Marie. We get to see her looking quite severe in this initial procession, but she never has a line, and she isn't seen again. In spite of that, Hope Summers, who plays Marie, gets a credit at the end of the show. Now, there's plenty of extras in this episode that don't get credits. So why does she get a credit? I suppose you could say because she actually gets named. But later, in the cafe, we'll encounter Mademoiselle Chenier, and she doesn't get a credit. So maybe it's because Marie is part of the family. Or maybe Hope just had a really good agent. Hope Summers is probably very familiar to you if you're a fan of the old Andy Griffith show. She played Aunt B's best friend, Clara Edwards. Or you may recognize her as one of the Satanists from Rosemary's Baby. Hope was born in Mattoon, Illinois, the daughter of the town doctor. Later, the family moved to Walla Walla, Washington, where her father was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. But Hope returned to Illinois to attend Northwestern and graduated in 1923 from the Northwestern School of Speech. Not long after, she became the head of the speech department at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. There, she started performing in community and stock theaters. In 1926, she was cast in the lead in the Peoria Players' production of Carol Kopeck's R.U.R., which is the play from which we get the term robot. In the review of that play, the Peoria transcript wrote, I don't happen to think of any actress at the current moment who could have surpassed Miss Hope Summer's work. Her picture of the young Helena, eager, curious, ardent, and swayed visibly by many crisscross eddies of emotion, was unforgettably charming. There were warmth and tenderness and an irresistible appeal in the portrait in the quivering curves of the young mouth, the sorrow and sympathy in the eyes, and the throb of pity in the round white throat. From there, Hope began finding acting work in Chicago. She performed in a number of radio shows. And then finally, in 1950-51, she became a regular on the Chicago-based soap opera Hawkins Falls. When she moved to Hollywood, she became a regular face on a number of television shows, including a somewhat regular role on The Rifleman. Now, I know you're all waiting for the expected clip of Clara with Aunt B, but I'm not going to give you that, because Hope Summers was also the voice, for 20 years, of the animated syrup bottle, Mrs. Butterworth. Mrs. Butterworth? Yes? How come you taste so good? 
Well, my syrup is very thick and rich. Thick and rich? Just watch. See how the leading syrup just runs over this stack? While Mrs. Butterworth takes her own sweet time. Now, my syrup's got to be thick to pour this slowly. Truth is, Mrs. Butterworth's is twice as thick as the other syrup. Thick and rich and... Mmm, Mrs. Butterworth, I love you. Oh. She's in one more episode, The End of Indian Summer, episode 22 of season 2. And Hope Summers died in 1979, but like Victor Wolfson, her age is unclear. Some sources list her as 77 years old, other sources list her as 83. So now the lawyer starts reading the will. And if you haven't recognized the lawyer from the sight of him, you'll almost certainly recognize his voice. I leave my entire estate to my dear and devoted wife, Rosalie Talendier. Yes, that's right. It's Percy Helton, whom we last saw in episode number two, Premonition. I went through his bio at that time, so there's no need to do it again. But the clip I played for him back then didn't even include him in it. So let's give Percy a clip of his own. This from the Twilight Zone episode, Mr. Garrity and the Graves. Probably figured you'd gone after the sheriff and decided to get out of town. By golly, that's good reasoning, sheriff. That's just what he done. He's obviously some sort of a con man. And when he saw Jensen here leave the saloon, he knew he was going for the lawman. So uh, he, he felt he was in trouble and he got out of town. Now, oh, that's a very fine piece of deduction. Except, how's come he left his wagon? Goberman, you're a very embarrassing man to have around. What do you want to ask a question like that for? How's come he left his wagon? How's come he left his wagon? How come he did leave his wagon? Percy is in five more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Creeper, episode 38. Let's go back and listen to the lawyer, even though the facial expressions and slight reactions of all the other characters are much more important than anything he says. I leave my entire estate to my dear and devoted wife, Rosalie Talendier. She knows my wishes concerning certain bequests I wish to make to our church. To the convent of St. Anne, I bequeath the sum of 3,000 francs. And to my cook, Ernestine, I give 1,000 francs. Upon the death of my wife, the income for my estate shall be... <coughs> Excuse me. The income for my estate shall be divided equally between my two nephews, Paul and Henri Talendier. Ah, how's that, pretty lady? Be quiet, you pest. The moment, of course, when the lawyer coughs and has to take a drink of water right when he's about to say what happens to the money after Aunt Rosalie dies is a cheap gag, but it helps to keep Paul and Henri on tenterhooks. But when the lawyer says that all the money is going to Rosalie to begin with, the camera switches to her, and she gives us a little nod of the head, as if to confirm, yes, that's what it should be, all's right with the world. When the lawyer says that 3,000 francs are going to the convent of St. Anne, the camera is on Henri and Marie, and they sort of give slight looks to each other like, uh-oh, this doesn't sound good. Interestingly, when the lawyer mentions the 1,000 francs that Ernestine gets, the camera does not show us Ernestine at all. 
But when he finally gets out that the two brothers get the bulk of the estate on the death of Aunt Rosalie, we get a shot of Aunt Rosalie looking quite alarmed. And then, of course, Rosalie's parrot speaks, apparently commenting on Rosalie's reaction. How's that pretty lady? And tying off the scene rather nicely. We crossfade to another close-up of glasses and liquid. This time, someone is pouring champagne, and the camera pulls back to show us that it's Paul and Henri in a crowded auberge. They are quite delighted at their future windfall. <laughs> We're going to be rich, don't you understand, Henri? Rich! How much do you think we shall have? 50,000 francs at least. A piece? Of course, a piece. Uncle Jean had that much? That tight-fisted old pig saved every penny. Oh, Paul. Why do you say Paul? Well, you oughtn't to speak of the dead like that. Oh, forgive me. I forgot you had such delicate feelings. It was very kind of him to remember us at all. After all, we weren't very good to the old man. Oh, you depress me. This is a time for rejoicing. When the old lady dies, it will all be ours. Don't you understand? Yours and mine. So now we know that these two are a couple of rotten eggs. Henri may object to the way Paul refers to their late uncle, but as he himself says, they didn't treat him very well when he was alive. Paul may be single, a carouser, and a gambler, and Henri may be married with children with a steady job, but they have one thing in common. They both need money, and they need it immediately. I'm at the end of my rope. We're swamped with bills, Marie and I. We owe everybody. Our creditors won't wait. Yesterday, the landlord said that if we didn't you want to borrow money again, is that it? Well, you have only yourself to look after. I've got my wife, four little ones. Portrait of the happy married man. Well, here's 50 francs, and that's all. And I'm a lost sou myself. Now, don't ask me again. When Paul proposes this toast... Why do we drink to Aunt Rosalie? To wish the dear old lady Godspeed into the next world. Henri refuses to drink to that, so Paul takes his glass away from him and he drinks both glasses to that. So Henri seems more upright and honest than his brother, but desperate means lead to desperate measures. And so we move to Aunt Rosalie's garden as Henri tries to get her to lend him money. He appeals to her humanity, which is a mistake, because she may well be as heartless, as Henri puts it, as her two nephews. I've heard the same story for as long as I've known you. What do you do with all your money? My job doesn't pay enough. Get another. Well, I've tried. You're lazy. I work from morning till night. There are four little ones at home. Well, that's none of my affair. That's all I have to say to you. Aunt Rosalie, I only want to borrow a little money on my inheritance. Your inheritance? So that's it. You wish me dead? No, no. You dream of me lying in my coffin. I can see it in your eyes. You're just waiting. Well. You will have a long time waiting, nephew. You're heartless, Aunt Rosalie. Not strong as an ox. I shall outlive both my nephews. I'm determined to do that. And the convent will get my money. On the other hand, it may just be how Henri approaches it. Paul shows up, and at first he gets the Henri treatment as Aunt Rosalie pulls a silver frame out of his hands that he seems to be fondling too possessively. But then, instead of playing the role of the virtuous nephew, he finds common ground with her in their respective selfishness. You're a hard one. And you, dear nephew, are so tender-hearted. That's right. That makes two of a kind. That's better. We understand one another. 
As for my health... Yes? It's excellent, unfortunately for you. Now, what do you want? Money. I've got plenty of money, thank you. Oh, what a liar you are. You probably haven't more than two sous in your pocket right now. Less. How's that, pretty lady? How's that? Be quiet, you silly bird. Another commentary by the parrot, this time on Paul admitting his poverty. How do you live? Why don't you get a job? I can't keep a job. Well, you'll get no sympathy from me. Good day. I'm not very well. My dizziness keeps coming back. That's why I can't keep a job. What dizziness? Well, the doctor calls it anemia. You get about too much and don't eat enough. Well, I ought to have someone to look after me. Maybe so. But you've come to the wrong house. Now you get out, too. And now, having played the health card, a slight smile crosses Paul's face, and the act begins. Very well. Oh, Aunt Rosalie, oh. What's the matter? Ernestine. Ernestine! Ernestine rushes in, and seeing Paul on the floor, bends down to loosen his tie. The camera joins the two of them down there, while Aunt Rosalie stays above, creating a visual bond between Paul and Ernestine. After the two women determine that Paul has fainted, but is otherwise okay, the softer-hearted Ernestine suggests that Paul should stay. Madame, if Monsieur Paul were here, you'd have company. You wouldn't be so lonely. No, perhaps that's true. Well, it's no harm letting him stay the night, anyway. Give him a good dinner. Once again, we get a scene where the camera focuses on the person not speaking. As Paul listens in, his eyes open just a touch, and they flutter as he listens. And when Aunt Rosalie says, Oh, perhaps that's true. His face is adorned with the slightest of smiles. So Paul is going to stay, at least for the night. But more important than that, Ernestine is going to serve him some dinner. Let's take a look at Gladys Hurlbut, who plays Ernestine. Gladys was born in 1898, and she started on the stage. One of her earliest Broadway roles was in John Millington Sings, The Playboy of the Western World. And while she continued to perform on Broadway, she also wrote or co-wrote plays that appeared on Broadway. She wrote the book for the Rodgers and Hart musical Higher and Higher, along with Josh Logan. In 1936, she was one of three screenwriters on the film Love on the Run, which starred Joan Crawford and Clark Gable. But she herself was not seen in films or television until 1951, when she appeared in the Gene Tierney film The Mating Season. For the next 10 years, she appeared in various films and television shows and then appears to have retired. Her last credits in IMDb are The Ann Southern Show and The Donna Reed Show, both in 1961. Now, since I bailed out on playing a clip of Hope Summers on The Andy Griffith Show, let's play Gladys in the episode entitled Alcohol and Old Lace. Uh, did you ladies by any chance want to talk to me? Well, yes, in your official capacity. Oh, well, in that case, uh, I guess I'm official. Me too. What's on your mind? Well, we know the whereabouts of a moonshine still. Well, we appreciate that, ladies, but I'm afraid you're a little late. 
We already know about that still. <laughs> We're on our way up to Hawks Point now to knock it over. But it isn't at Hawks Point. No, where's me? Uh, ain't that cute, Annie, them trying to tell us where it is? <laughs> Less than an hour ago, I was that close to it. But we saw it. The way I spotted her, I seen Otis Campbell staggered down the road singing. Barney. Well, being a trained crime detector, why Barney, I Barney, Barney, Barney. I, I believe Miss Clarabelle said something that we ought to listen to. What What was that again, Miss Clarabelle? I said we saw the steel with our own eyes. She's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents... The Indestructible Mr. Weems, episode 37 of season two. And Gladys Hurlbut died in 1988 at the age of 89. It's time for more of Henri's narration. Paul remained without Rosalie for weeks. She seemed to enjoy his company. She even seemed delighted by his audacity. And the weeks stretched into months. He had nothing to worry about now. He was taken care of. He could wait. And with that, Paul enters the kitchen to talk to Ernestine, and we see how their bond has flourished. What are we having for dinner tonight? What does your heart desire? Well, uh... Such a pleasure to be able to cook with enthusiasm again. My talents are wasted on your aunt's meager diet. Ernestine kneels down to baste whatever it is she's cooking in the oven, and Paul kneels with her. So here they are again side by side, down near the floor. Always the same. Fish or souffle, day after day. Fish, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Eggs, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. No mention of what Aunt Rosalie has on Sundays. What do I care? I eat so well, I should think my Aunt Rosalie would die of envy, if nothing else. Rosalie is, in fact, still in perfect health as she sits out in the garden being examined by Dr. Poncet. Remarkable. The pulse of a girl of 20. <laughs> Hero, I think your nephew has an excellent effect on your health, Madame Trelonghi. He's a rascal. Unfortunately for Paul, it appears that the doctor is right. Paul's presence is good for Aunt Rosalie's health. And now Paul himself enters and babies Aunt Rosalie. Good morning, Aunt Rosalie. My, don't we look wonderful this morning? Liar. I ache and creak in every bone. <laughs> here, here, what have we here? Cover up, cover up. Now, there's a devoted nephew for you. We've got to keep you nice and cozy, don't oh, we? Oh, stop fussing. But he obviously likes taking care of you. You just run along, Dr. Ponset. Oh, very well. Goodbye, oh. Madame Tillandier. Goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. Goodbye, Dr. Ponset. And that's it for Dr. Ponset, who was played by Walter Kingsford. Walter Kingsford played a lot of doctors in his career. In fact, he'll play three more in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He was born Walter Stephen Thomas Kingsford Pierce. IMDb calls him serious-looking, dignified English character actor from the London stage. But he also had a long career on Broadway, appearing first in the 1912 American production of George Bernard Shaw's Fanny's First Play, and continuing all the way up to 1944's Song of Norway. Rotten Tomatoes says, Most of the actor's film characters were unsympathetic. He had the air of a disgraced aristocrat who'd been caught misappropriating trust funds or selling government secrets. That includes his role as Don Carlos in Naughty Marietta. Has there been a death in your family? A death? It is only the traditional color of our house. You will not have to wear it. Uh, you may go. 
Will you be here long, Don Carlos? Only until I take my lovely Nina back to Spain with me. Uh, shall we uh, discuss the wedding plans and the manner in which... Uh... Oh, couldn't we discuss it downstairs? If you'll excuse me, please. I've only just returned from shopping and... Uh, but yes. He also played Napoleon II in the story of Louis Pasteur and Colonel Sandher in The Life of Emile Zola. All three of those films were nominated for an Academy Award in Best Picture, and the last of them, The Life of Emile Zola, won the award for Best Picture. He was in another Best Picture winner, 1956's Around the World in 80 Days, and four more Best Picture nominees, A Tale of Two Cities, Anthony Adverse, Captains Courageous, and Kitty Foyle. But what about all those doctors? Well, he played Dr. Walter Carew in 14 Dr. Kildare and Dr. Gillespie movies. He's also a doctor in the Suspicion episode, Rainy Day, which also features our two friends from last time, John Williams and Arthur Gould Porter. He's in six episodes of science fiction theater, playing a doctor in three of those. And he's a doctor in the General Electric Theater episode, The Man Who Inherited Everything as well as a doctor in the four-star playhouse episode, Tunnel of Fear, and a chief surgeon in TV Reader's Digest episode, Six Hours of Surgery. He's in five total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Legacy, episode number 35, the only one in which he does not play a doctor. And Walter Kingsford died in 1958 at the age of 76. After the doctor leaves... Aunt Rosalie and Paul bond in their heartlessness. He thinks I'm going to leave him something when I die, but I won't. Not a cent. <laughs> <laughs> you're a mean old buzzard, aren't you? And you, you're just a vulture waiting to close in. You don't fool me. Paul kneels down to help Aunt Rosalie with the blanket that's covering her legs, and the camera moves down again with him. So now we have those two nearly nose-to-nose, -nose, lower down, Perhaps Paul is finding a connection with Aunt Rosalie, just as he's found one with Ernestine. And perhaps that explains why he doesn't just drop Aunt Rosalie when he has the chance. Well, here, we'll go for a little walk. Come, pull me up. Ooh. What if I were to let you fall now? What do you mean? You'd fall now and crack your skull, wouldn't you? Oh, pull me up, Paul, pull me up. Oh, stop playing, Paul, keep me! <laughs> I wouldn't let you go for anything in the world. Don't you know that? <laughs> what a rascal you are! <laughs> but that night, Paul surprises someone in the parlor stealing valuable objects, and it turns out to be Henri. In his hands is the silver frame that Paul previously held. Paul reproaches Henri for stealing while he, Paul, is a guest in the house. But Henri replies, What fine sentiments you've developed, brother. Huh? You can afford them. Now you're eating well. Now listen to me. Unless the laws of nature have been repealed, she can't go on like this much longer, now can she? She seems to be. You listen to reason. Only today she complained of a pain in the back. Paul, I cannot wait any longer. Now what do you want me to do, kill her? And it's at that moment that everything changes. Because as Paul says it, he realizes he must do it. We see it on his face, and Henri, his back turned to us, nods at Paul. Well, I don't deny that I haven't thought of it before. I get so bored in this house. Waiting, waiting. She gets healthier every day. I feel like I'm trapped. 
Man has the right to help nature along. I mean, if it gets stubborn, don't you think? What do you mean? Away with all obstacles. Let life move on. Shh. I'm only saying, she's had enough. It's our turn now. Yes, yes. At last, Henri voices his agreement. Yes, yes. The two men agree to meet at the Café Marais at 11 o'clock the following morning. But before they part, there's this rather odd scene. They go out to the garden, and Paul plucks a honeysuckle from above the frame of the camera. Oh, look. There's a blossom. It's withered. I despise decaying things. Don't you? Is he talking about Aunt Rosalie here, or is he talking about himself? That sudden fear of rotting away in the house, waiting for her to die. And so 11 a.m. rolls around, and the two men meet at the cafe, and they're already drinking. Paul is making eyes at Mademoiselle Chenier. And there's a lot of extras here in this scene. Gendarmes come in and out. There's a couple sitting nearby who eavesdrop on Paul and Henri's conversation and look at them with alarm, which makes Henri very nervous. So there's a lot of activity here. There's a lot of stories going on that we never get to hear. But we do get to hear the two men concoct their murder plans. How are we going to get rid of Aunt Rosalie? With dispatch. Yes, but by what means? Well, there are all sorts of methods. The open window, for example. Push her out. How crude you are. No, no. A cold draft. Properly placed when a person sleeping can do wonders. All sorts of lovely complications can develop, like influenza, pneumonia. Yes, yes, that's an excellent idea. But you might recover. The doctors are very efficient these days. It's most annoying. Suppose Aunt Rosalie were to slip and break her neck. Oh, just a little. A fall downstairs, doesn't that appeal to you? I don't know. But you know, she might regain consciousness and tell. That wouldn't do, would it? We can't. Be quiet. The two men leave the crowded cafe, and as they're walking out, Paul comes up with another approach. Best approach may be the gastronomical one. How do you mean? The way to our heart's desire may be through Aunt Rosalie's stomach. You mean to poison her food? Talk like some medieval murderer. But that is what you meant. I, I know it is. Poison? Who said anything about poison? I didn't, did I? No ground glass, finely ground, to a powder. You don't have to use Baccarat. Any ordinary wine glass would do. Now, sometime this morning when your wife is out... Uh, I am to do this? Brother, you must contribute something. This is a mutual enterprise for the benefit of us both. Oh, I'm frightened. Now, Ari, you run along and commit your little deed, and I shall be waiting for you here. Well? Hurry! Henri, finely ground. Peppery. The scene dissolves to a close-up of a mortar and pestle as Henri grinds up a wine glass. We get one shot of his face looking almost hypnotized in his intensity, and then back to the mortar and pestle in a perversion of the close-ups of food and drink that we've seen before. Henri fills a small vial with his ground glass, but the truth is his glass isn't very finely ground at all. It's certainly not peppery. I think you would notice this if you found it in your food. When Henri returns to the cafe, he finds Paul drunk. Heard Hatfield as Paul does a tremendous job of playing someone drunk without overplaying it. 
and they complete their plan. Ingredient with which to season the souffle. Ah, yes. Last night she had fish. Tonight she'll have souffle with this added ingredient. It will be an ambrosia fit for the angels. And when Aunt Rosalie tastes it, she'll become one of them. For heaven's sakes, Paul, be quiet. Quiet. I'll not, of course, be home for dinner. At breakfast, or possibly before, Ernestine will bring me the good news. You let me know at once. At once. But you know what? That everything has gone well. I'll telephone you here tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Back at the house, Aunt Rosalie walks into the kitchen looking for Paul. Ernestine tells her that he's not around. We also learn that Ernestine is making him duck for lunch. She also has a bottle of wine for Rosalie and Paul to share. So Paul has wrapped Ernestine around his little finger. And what about Aunt Rosalie? You must admit it's been lively since Monsieur Paul came here. And you, look at you, you're blooming. Blooming, like the century plant. And that dress, why, you haven't worn that dress since the wedding of the mayor's daughter. Why shouldn't I wear it? The morning period's over. I sure he'll like you in that dress too, madame. You are a fool, Ernestine. Perhaps I'm one, too. I don't think that we're supposed to be inferring that Aunt Rosalie would like a May-September aunt-to-nephew romance. But it almost seems like it. I think instead, in 1956 TV, we're supposed to infer that he's just completely won her over. Let's skip that whole discussion and instead look at mourning periods. Now, Aunt Rosalie says that the morning period is over, and she's wearing this very bright dress. Paul and Henri are still wearing their black armbands. And we know it's been some months because we learned that in one of Henri's narrations. So how long is a morning period? Well, according to jerrywalton.com, when it came to mourning, the French had a shorter period for mourning than many other countries. And this brevity sometimes shocked people. The French also had three grades of mourning, deep, ordinary, and half-mourning. One etiquette book noted that these grades were represented thusly. In deep mourning, woolen clothes only are worn. In ordinary mourning, silk and woolen. In half mourning, gray and violet. Etiquette prescribes mourning for a husband for one year and six weeks. That is, six months of deep mourning, six of ordinary, and six weeks of half mourning. For a wife, a father, or a mother, six months, three deep and three half mourning. For a grandparent, two months and a half of slight mourning. For a brother or a sister, two months, one of which is deep mourning. For an uncle or an aunt, three weeks of ordinary black. So it seems as if Paul and Henri are in mourning for a lot longer than they need to be. Perhaps they're trying to butter up Aunt Rosalie. Now, Paul is already drunk, but he takes advantage of Ernestine's bottle of wine to try to get Aunt Rosalie drunk. This, like not dropping Aunt Rosalie when he had her at his mercy, may not be the best idea. You know, there'll be a surprise for your dinner tonight. A surprise? What is it? Well, it has a new name. It's called Souffle à la glace. Souffle à la glace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, will it taste any different with a new name? No, I'm afraid not. That same old egg dish, you mean? Well, I wouldn't dream of upsetting the Queen's menu. Huh? Ah, how's that, pretty lady? Ah, 
Just like our last episode, Back for Christmas, we're now in on the plans of the murderer, so we get the joke when he refers to souffle à la glace, even though la glace in French is ice. Aunt Rosalie, not in on the joke, celebrates the new name, but again the parakeet breaks in, this time to sober her up, so to speak, making her realize she's had way too much to drink. And when she gets up and tries to leave, she staggers a bit, prompting the parakeet to speak again. Hold fast, old girl, hold fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet dreams, my love. My love. Here again, as she staggers, Paul has the opportunity to allow her to fall. But again, he grabs her and holds her and calls her my love, at which Rosalie scoffs. But again, perhaps this is what she would like. And perhaps there's a part of Paul who feels that way too. But we're not going to go there. Instead, let's dissolve back to the kitchen, where we get another one of those close-up shots of food. This one pulls back to show Ernestine cracking the last of eight eggs and dropping it into a bowl. Paul enters, and Ernestine chides him for giving his aunt too much wine. And then Aunt Rosalie calls for Ernestine, asking for her smelling salts. So it appears that Paul's scheme is working. Overcome by the wine, Rosalie calls for Ernestine, which gets her out of the room and allows Paul to mix the glass into the eggs, even as we get what the pie lady calls the, oh, no, you didn't sting. In the parlor, Aunt Rosalie has an ice bag on her head as Ernestine gives her her smelling salts. The parrot is back there, too. So did Paul bring the parrot in as well as Aunt Rosalie when they came in from the garden? When Paul comes in, again, as in Back for Christmas, we understand what he's really talking about here. And the camera moves down again as Paul kneels down to speak to Aunt Rosalie one last time. Oh, I feel terrible. Oh. It will pass. Soon you'll feel nothing. I'm sorry that you have to have dinner alone. Oh, run along, run along. I've... I'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Aunt Rosalie. The camera crossfades to one last shot of a close-up of a table. This one with three saucers stacked on top of each other, a wine glass with very little in it, and two fidgeting hands. The camera pulls back to show Henri in the cafe, waiting nervously as we hear his final narration. How can I describe that agony of waiting? I thought I'd go mad. Paul said he would telephone me at 10 to give me the good news. 10 o'clock came, and it went. And 11 o'clock. By noon, I was frantic. But then, suddenly... Telephone me, sir. The man saying... Telephone me, sir. ...was the cafe waiter, and he was played by Jack Sheff. Jack Sheff, sometimes pronounced Sheffet, was born in 1894 in Kiev, in Tsarist Russia. Rotten Tomatoes says that he played exactly what he looked and sounded like, head waiters. That was also his occupation when not appearing in films, of which he did literally hundreds between 1932 and 1959, serving such stars as Carol Lombard in My Man Godfrey, Jeanette MacDonald in Bittersweet, Bob Hope in My Favorite Brunette, and even Dick Tracy. Yes, Jack played lots of waiters in Strangers When We Meet, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, two episodes of The Millionaire, several episodes of Perry Mason, an episode of Man with a Camera, an episode of Mr. Lucky, 
The Man Who Understood Women, two episodes of How to Marry a Millionaire, I, Mobster, and on and on and on, including a maitre d' in The Perfect Furlough and a waiter in a strip club in Jailhouse Rock. Rotten Tomatoes goes on to say that once in a while, Chef managed to escape typecasting, playing one of the Legionnaires in Laurel and Hardy's Flying Deuces and a croupier in The Big Sleep. He also escaped typecasting in Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, playing one of the hotel security men. He's got plenty of screen time, but what with all the whispering and silent scenes of the security men planning, I don't think he has any actual lines. So instead, here he is in Guys and Dolls, playing a waiter. Max, what's the matter no Danish today? It's a holiday in Denmark, how do I know? For all these years, you've been bringing me Danish. So we ain't got Danish today. Today I'm bringing you cheesecake. You want strudel instead? I'll bring you strudel. I don't like strudel. So eat the cheesecake. Live it up a little. Now, according to IMDb, Jack was in episode five, Into Thin Air, as a detective. But I can't find him there. I can't find any detective there. So I'm going to assume that this is Jack's first appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He is in one other, The Specialty of the House, episode 12, of season five, in which he plays a waiter. And Jack Sheff died in 1975 at the age of 81. So Henri goes to answer the phone. Hello? Yes? Yes? What? Clearly, whatever it is that Henri is told, it's not what he's expecting. We cut back to the house where Ernestine is explaining things to Henri. The camera stays on Ernestine for a lot of this explanation. Then it cuts to Henri. And then it does a pan to whoever is sitting next to him. How can I explain it to you? Yesterday your aunt was ill all afternoon. She had drunk too much wine. Well, at dinner time, I said that it was an egg night. She flew into a rage. She insisted that it was a fish night. Now, Aunt Rosalie certainly knew it was an egg night when she was drinking the wine because she indulged in the joke about souffle a la glace. But apparently all that wine threw her off. I had to put the egg mixture away. Naturally, I couldn't waste it. I never throw out anything. Well, it was no use to argue with her, so I fried her a little fish. Isn't that so, madame? And it is at that moment that the camera moves over to show Aunt Rosalie sitting next to Henri. I shouldn't have drunk all that wine, but the dear boy insisted. Yes, he did. And just as moving in and taking care of Aunt Rosalie boomeranged on Paul, this final bottle of wine has boomeranged on him as well. After her dinner, Madame went straight to bed. We didn't hear Monsieur Paul come in at all. In the morning, she whipped up those eggs into an omelette for him. I was still upstairs in bed. He ate heartily. He always did. But in a little while, he died in agony, poor dear. His last words were, omelette a la glace. It was a joke we had. Paul did complain of dizzy spells, but I never took it seriously. We're waiting for Dr. Poncet to tell us the exact cause of death. You are my sole heir now, Henri. Everything will go to you. You're all the family I have left. We must try to be closer, Henri. So Paul has had a good effect on Aunt Rosalie. She's now very sentimental about family, and she wants to get to know Henri. 
And part of getting to know him is, of course... Ernestine, get the dear boy something to eat. Something light. A marmalade, perhaps. No. No! Always said he was an odd one. So different from his dear brother. Let's look at the short story and the story's author. Stacy Aumonier was born in 1877, dying of tuberculosis at the age of 51 in 1928. His father, William Aumonier, was an architectural sculptor and the founder of the Aumonier Studios off Tottenham Court Road in London. His uncle was the painter James Aumonier. His brother, William Jr., was also an architectural sculptor and was responsible for recreating the interiors of King Tut's tomb at the British Empire Exhibition in Wembley in 1924. His nephew, Eric Monnier, was responsible for the sculpture The Archer at East Finchley Station in London. Stacy seemed to be following in the family tradition, mainly as a landscape painter. He had exhibitions of his paintings at the Royal Academy in 1902 and in 1903, and it may have been because of this that he met and married in 1907 international concert pianist Gertrude Peppercorn, who was the daughter of the landscape painter Arthur Douglas Peppercorn. But a year after the marriage, Stacy began a career on stage, writing and performing in his own sketches. These performances were highly successful and highly regarded by the critics. Shortly after Stacy's death, The Observer put out an appreciation in which they said, The stage lost in him a real and rare genius. He could walk out alone before any audience, from the simplest to the most sophisticated, and make it laugh or cry at will. In his book Written in Friendship, Gerald Cumberland wrote that Stacy's work on the stage was the perfect preparation for his later writing career, describing it as an almost ideal apprenticeship in literature. He gave character sketches of all kinds of people, vivid little portraits of curious men he had encountered in country lanes, in town, anywhere. To act well, one must have observed men and women most closely. More, one must have understood them. Aumonier did act well. The theater for him was but the entrance hall to literature. So Stacy finally turned to short stories. John Galsworthy said he was one of the best short story writers of all time and predicted that through the best of his stories, he would outlive all the writers of his day. That unfortunately has not been true. James Hilton said, I think his very best works ought to be included in any anthology of the best short stories ever written. Here's Christopher Fowler in The Independent as part of his series on forgotten authors. During this time, he wrote many short stories which should rightly be regarded as classics, but aren't. Worse, his work has vanished completely, and even collections of tales get his dates wrong. Yet John Galsworthy and Alfred Hitchcock were admirers of his style, his way with suspense, his wit, humanity, and lightness of touch. He was described as never heavy, never boring, never really trivial. He sat for rather a lot of paintings in the National Portrait Gallery, which usually show him dressed for dinner. When his illness was diagnosed as terminal, he wrote The Thrill of Being Ill, in which he says, You become subtly aware of the change in attitude in the manner of certain people. You have become dramatically a center of interest. Now, The Perfect Murder first appeared in the October 1926 issue of The Strand magazine, but I have it in an old issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery magazine, 
the March 1952 issue. And here's the introduction from there. Many writers start their professional careers as anything but writers. W. Somerset Maugham, Conan Doyle, A.J. Cronin began as doctors. Arthur Train was originally a lawyer. Brett Halliday earned his living as an engineer. Others have broken into life before breaking into print as musicians, actors, soldiers, sailors, gamblers, explorers, farmers, diplomats, teachers, magicians, even as private eyes. Stacy Aumonier, the English novelist and short story writer, began as a landscape painter, and he was unusually successful in this earliest phase of his professional career. Then he switched to an entirely different field. He became an entertainer, and again was enthusiastically received by his public. But still, we can deduce Mr. Aumonier was not happy, for during the First World War, he started experimenting with putting words together. His first serious effort was a short story called The Friends. Literary agents refused to handle it. It was the tale of two furniture salesmen who drank themselves to death. Somehow, it got into print and proved a sensation. It was voted one of the 15 best stories of the year, and clergymen all over the world used the story as a theme for their sermons. And after The Friends, Mr. Amonier's fame as a writer increased steadily. Rebecca West once said of Mr. Amonier's work, His creations are dyed in the fast dyes of the authentic imagination. He achieves that confusion between the real and the imagined world, which is the envy of all artists. Now the story begins with Paul and Henri having a discussion long before we hear anything about an aunt or an uncle. One evening in November, two brothers were seated in a little cafe in the Rue de la Roquette, discussing murders. The evening papers lay in front of them, and they all contained a lurid account of a shocking affair in the Landis district, where a charcoal burner had killed his wife and two children with a hatchet. From discussing this murder in particular, they went on to discussing murder in general. Here's this fellow murders his victims with his own hatchet leaves his hat behind in the shed, and arrives at a village hard by with bloody boots. They lose their heads, said Henri, the elder. In cases like that, they are mentally unbalanced, hardly responsible for their actions. Yes, replied Paul, but what impresses me is what a lot of murders must be done by people who take trouble, who leave not a trace behind. Henri shrugged his shoulders. I shouldn't think it was so easy, old boy. There's always something that crops up. Nonsense. I'll guarantee there are thousands done every year. If you are living with anyone, for instance, it must be the easiest thing in the world to murder them. How? Oh, some kind of accident. And then you go screaming into the street. Oh, my poor wife, help! You burst into tears, and everyone consoles you. I read of a woman somewhere who murdered her husband by leaving the window near the bed open at night when he was suffering from pneumonia. Who's going to suspect a case like that? Instead of that, people must always select revolvers or knives or go and buy poison at the chemist's across the way. It sounds as though you were contemplating a murder yourself, laughed Henri. Well, you never know, answered Paul. Circumstances might arise when a murder would be the only way out of a difficulty. If ever my time comes, I shall take a lot of trouble about it. I promise you I shall leave no trace behind. It's only after that opening, which I like quite a bit, it sets the tone very well that we learn about the uncle and aunt, and that the brothers are hard up for money. Aumonier writes, They had no other relatives except a very old uncle and aunt who lived at Chantilly. This uncle and aunt, whose name was Talendier, were fairly well off, but they would have little to do with the two nephews. 
They were occasionally invited there to dinner, but neither Paul nor Henri ever succeeded in extracting a franc out of Uncle Robert. He was a very religious man, hard-fisted, cantankerous, and intolerant. His wife was a little more pliable. She was, in effect, an eccentric. She had spasms of generosity, during which periods both the brothers had at times managed to get money out of her, but these were rare occasions. Then both brothers experienced hardships. Paul had been detected in a dishonest transaction over a paste trinket and had just been released from a period of imprisonment. Henri's wife had had another baby and had been very ill. He was more in debt than ever. And so it is that, as Aumonier puts it, the news of the uncle's death came as a gleam of hope in the darkness of despair. The terms of the will are the same as the episode, and for a while Paul and Henri are able to tap Aunt Rosalie for money. But she tires of their excuses, and Aumonier writes, She now had a companion, an angular middle-aged woman named Madame Chavanne, who appeared like a protecting goddess. Sometimes, when the brothers called, Madame Chavanne would say that Madame Talendier was too unwell to see anyone. If this news had been true, it would have been good news indeed. But the brothers suspected that it was all prearranged. And then, just like that, two years go by. Companions come and go. The one constant is Ernestine, the cook. And then one day, Paul faints. It is difficult to know what it was about this act which affected the old lady, but she ordered him to be put to bed in one of the rooms of the villa. Possibly she jumped to the conclusion that he had fainted from lack of food, which was not true. Paul never went without food and drink, and she suddenly realized that after all he was her husband's sister's son. He must certainly have looked pathetic, this white-faced man, well past middle age and broken in life. Whatever it was, she showed a broad streak of compassion for him. She ordered her servants to look after him and to allow him to remain until she countermanded the order. Paul is sly enough to know how to deal with this. The next morning, looking very white and shaky, he visited her and asked her to allow him to go, as he had no idea of abusing her hospitality. If he had taken up the opposite attitude, she would probably have turned him out. But because he suggested going, she ordered him to stop. So Paul has it quite nicely, and he doesn't care at all about Henri. He was quite comfortable himself, and he didn't see the point of his brother butting in. They quarreled about this, and did not see each other for some time. One would have thought that Henri's appeal to Mademoiselle Talendier would have been stronger than Paul's. He was a struggling individual with a wife and four children. Paul was a notorious ne'er-do-well, and he had no attachments. Nevertheless, the old lady continued to support Paul. Perhaps it was because he was a big man, and she liked big men. Her husband had been a man of fine physique. Henri was puny, and she despised him. She had never had children of her own, and she disliked children. She was always upbraiding Henri and his wife for their fecundity. Any attempt to pander to her emotions through the sentiment of childhood failed. She would not have the children in her house, and any small acts of charity which she bestowed upon them seemed to be done more with the idea of giving her an opportunity to inflict her sarcasm and venom upon them than out of kindness of heart. So Aunt Rosalie seems a little bit meaner than she does in the Hitchcock episode. And speaking of the episode, one of the strange things about it is Paul's transition from somebody living comfortably with Aunt Rosalie to suddenly deciding to kill her. We get his explanations. I get so bored in this house. And also... I feel like I'm trapped. And strangest of all... I despise decaying things. None of which really work. They all seem a little artificial. 
But perhaps Victor Wolfson didn't have much choice. Perhaps he was constrained by the time. Not necessarily the length of time of the episode, but how much time passes within the episode. In the story, with the years going by, Stacy can finally bring us to a moment where Paul's success went to his rather weak head like wine. He began to swagger and bluster and abuse his aunt's hospitality. And curiously enough, the more he advanced, the further she withdrew. He let his traveling business go, and sometimes he would get lost for days at a time. He would spend his time at the races and drinking with doubtful acquaintances in obscure cafes. Sometimes he won, but in the majority of cases he lost. He ran up bills and got into debt. By cajoling small sums out of his aunt, he kept his debtors at bay for nearly nine months. But one evening he came to see Henri in a great state of distress. His face, which had taken on a healthier glow when he first went to live with his aunt, had become puffy and livid. Old boy, he said, I'm at my wit's end. I've got to find 7,000 francs by the 21st of the month or they're going to foreclose. And that's when Henri remembers their conversation about the perfect murder. When the two pleasant gentlemen parted at midnight, their plans were still very immature, but they arranged to meet the following evening. When the two brothers meet the next day, Henri has second thoughts, but nevertheless agrees to grind up the glass, which he gives to Paul. And then Henri, in many ways, becomes the main character of the piece, as we follow him the next day, going through paroxysms of regret and thinking over and over that he could still stop it, but he doesn't. And Paul eats it instead, and Paul dies. But there's a little bit more to the story, because there's an inquest. And in the inquest, the glass in the eggs is discussed. Then the beaten-up eggs with their deadly mixture were intended for Madame Talendier? But who was responsible for this? Ernestine? But there was no motive here. Ernestine gained nothing by her mistress's death. Indeed, she only stood to lose her situation. Motive? Was it possible that the deceased... The inquiry went on a long while. Henri himself was conscious of being in the witness box. He knew nothing. He couldn't understand it. His brother would not be likely to do that. He himself was prostrate with grief. He loved his brother. There was nothing to do but return an open verdict. Shadowy figures passed before his mind's eye. Shadowy figures and shadowy realizations. He had perfectly murdered his brother. The whole of the dividends of the estate would one day be his and his wife's and children's. 18,000 francs a year. One day, one vision more vivid than the rest. The old lady on the day following the inquest, seated bolt upright at her table like a figure of perpetuity, playing with the old gray parakeet, stroking its mangy neck. How's that, pretty lady? How's that? So Henri doesn't flee from the thought of an omelet. Instead, Henri serves to gain if Aunt Rosalie ever does die. Let's look at our three leads. And yes, there are three leads, even if Philip Coolidge as Henri doesn't get star building at the start. But just as in the short story, he may well be the main character. He certainly has a character arc, something Paul doesn't have. And whereas Aunt Rosalie learns affection for her relatives far too easily, Henri gets a hard lesson in the hypocrisy of his protests and sentiments and must face the truth of his murderous intentions. On the other hand, while he may never eat an omelet again, he is now Rosalie's sole heir, at least until we get to Hitch's retribution. 
Philip Coolidge was born in Concord, Massachusetts. IMDb says, balding, lean, American character actor who looked older than his years. Prolific on Broadway from his first performance in Our Town to his last in Hamlet. In between, he was in Darkness at Noon, The Crucible, Kismet, A Visit to a Small Planet, and UNESCO's Rhinoceros. He didn't have his first film role until he was 39 years old. A reliable character actor on the small screen, he made relatively few film appearances, but stood out in I Want to Live. Your end comes to 104. There's certain other activities of the past month. That makes $642. Now put it in the safe for you. Uh-uh. You want it? I'm quitting. And The Tingler. Fandango says Philip Coolidge's best and most recognizable film role was Ollie Higgins, the scheming silent movie theater manager who literally scares his wife to death and gets a suitable comeuppance in William Castle's gimmicky thriller, The Tingler. Castle was known for his gimmicks, and The Tingler is probably the best-known gimmick in which he used something called Perceptol, a vibrating device in some theater chairs, which activated with the on-screen action. And since the whole story was about a scientist who discovers a parasite in human beings which feeds on fear and which makes the spine of its host tingle when the host is frightened, that vibrating device could be very effective. Philip Coolidge was a regular on the television series Farmer's Daughter. He appears in the suspense episode Goodbye New York, the Way Out episode Hush Hush, the Lights Out episodes Dead Pigeon and The Strange Case of John Kingman and the Twilight Zone episode, A Piano in the House. What birthday does this make for your wife? The 26th. So young. You must be a man of great personal magnetism to attract a wife so young. I am. Utterly romantic. Youth and wisdom, hand in hand. How I'd love to see the two of you together. What, what a picture you must make. And for her birthday, you're giving her the gift of music. Oh, touching. What is the price of the piano? You are taking your young bride out somewhere tonight, hmm? Some quiet nook where you can be lost together in the midst of the great world, looking into each other's eyes. How much for the piano? Yeah. It's worth 250 but since it's for a birthday present, now that you have it for 200 I shall expect delivery before 6 o'clock this evening. The address is right here on my check. Certainly. I shouldn't like to have the little lady disappointed on her birthday. Uh, has it occurred to you that you're extraordinarily susceptible to the power of music? Isn't everybody? Well, to some degree, yes. You're going to stand around all day taking my good time? No, I was uh, just going. Oh, there's the door. Tell me, are you sentimental about anything else besides birthdays? Birthdays? They're a stupid waste of time and money. He's in the films Inherit the Wind, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. They say they've captured the airport? The Russians have captured the airport? Well, I don't know, but there's some kind of general alarm out. Oh. Hey, Porter! You know what's going on? They captured the airport. There's a general alarm out. And he has a small role in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. What's your name? Uh, Roger Thornhill. Stick out your tongue and say, ah. You better move back. Ah. Have you been drinking? Doc, uh, I am gassed. What were you drinking? Well, bourbon. 
the, these two fellas... How much would you say that you drank? What do you say? How much would you say that you drank? About this much. Mr. Uh, Thornhill. It is my opinion that you are definitely intoxicated, and I'm now no going to and I'm now going to ask your permission to draw blood. Philip Coolidge is in six total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is coming right up: Who Done It, episode number twenty-six. And Philip Coolidge died in nineteen sixty-seven at the age of fifty-eight. Heard Hatfield was born William Ruckard Heard Hatfield in New York City. His father, William Henry Hatfield, was at one time Deputy Attorney General for New York. His obituary in The Guardian says at the age of 19, he won a scholarship to study in England at the Michael Chekhov Theater and Drama School in Devon. When the company toured the U.S. in 1939, he played Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night, Gloucester in King Lear, and Kirillov in Dostoevsky's The Possessed. He made his film debut in 1944 in Dragon Seed, in which he and his co-stars, which included Catherine Hepburn, portrayed Chinese peasants. But his second film was The Picture of Dorian Gray, in which he played Dorian Gray. Only the picture could change, and I could be always what I am now. For that I would give everything. There's nothing in the whole world I would not give. Heard commented later in his life, the film didn't make me popular in Hollywood. It was too odd, too avant-garde, too ahead of its time. The decadence, the hints of bisexuality and so on made me a leper. Nobody knew I had a sense of humor and people wouldn't even have lunch with me. He also said, you know, I was never a great beauty in gray and I never understood why I got the part and have spent my career regretting it. I'm glad that the picture of Dorian Gray found its audience, but for the longest time I worried that people wouldn't realize that for me Dorian Gray was a character part. That wasn't me. Variety said Hatfield, as Pretty Boy Gray, is singularly narcissistic all the way and plays it with little feeling as apparently intended. But the Guardian obituary calls him particularly impressive in an almost impossible role. The Guardian goes on to say, from then on, Hatfield would play mostly decadent characters. In Michael Curtiz's The Unsuspected, 1947, he was a dipsomaniac married to a nymphomaniac. In The Checkered Coat, 1948, he played a psychopathic killer whose downfall results from his cataleptic seizures. And was a killer on the loose in Chinatown at Midnight, 1949. His desire for greater challenges led Hatfield to return to the stage in 1952, appearing as a studious young man in Christopher Fry's blank verse comedy Venus Observed, which starred Rex Harrison and Lily Palmer. In the title role of Julius Caesar at the American Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Connecticut in 1955, and as Don John in John Gielgud's production of Much Ado About Nothing, 1959, on Broadway. He returned to the screen in Arthur Penn's first feature, The Left-Handed Gun, 1958, brilliantly sly as the partner of Billy the Kid, played by Paul Newman. Wikipedia says that he always maintained that he preferred comedic to dramatic roles and always regretted that he got to play in so few of them because he was typed as an elegant menace. And Rotten Tomatoes says, perceived as a cold fish in his leading man days, Hatfield was able to use his sang-froid to his advantage in such roles as Paul Byrne in Harlow, the 1965 Carol Lindley version, 
and the middle-aged sex deviate in The Boston Strangler, 1968. The best of Herd Hadfield's most recent screen appearances was his portrayal of an inconvenient and troublesome grandparent in Crimes of the Heart, 1986. He also appeared in a lot of television. In 1963, he received an Emmy nomination for his role in The Invincible Mr. Disraeli, which appeared on Hallmark Hall of Fame. In 1952, he appeared as Joseph in Westinghouse Studio One's The Nativity. But nine years later, he was Pontius Pilate in Nicholas Ray's film King of Kings. You have just been interrogated by Caiaphas. They've judged you guilty on two counts, blasphemy and sedition. This court takes no cognizance of your blasphemy, but the charge of sedition is a major offense. The rules of Roman law will prevail. I, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, by grace of the emperor, the divine Tiberius of Rome, will judge your case. No matter what you've done up to this moment, no matter what others have accused you of doing, I and I alone have the authority to sentence you to be crucified or flogged or to set you free. How you conduct yourself here and now will determine your fate. Do you understand? I'm offering you an opportunity to state your defense. Your silence can only serve to militate against you. I'm now offering you a second opportunity. He also appeared as the villain in The City Beneath the Sea, the second episode of the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea TV series. My first diver became careless his first time down, which brings you to me, or me to you. Now, I want a man to replace him. I need one now. You make it sound almost like a one-way dive. I could end up as, um, one of your exhibits. <laughs> you are not one of my playthings, Mr. Glenn. But I will tell you, down there lie great riches, and I am willing to share some of their value with the man who gets them for me. And in 1966, he appeared in the Wild Wild West episode, the Night of the Man-Eating House, in which his character starts as an old man, but upon entering the house inhabited by his mother's ghost, is turned back into a youthful Confederate soldier. Sort of a twist on his Dorian Gray role. After 30 years, I'm returning to my ancestral home. And I intend to stay. She always liked me at that age. Doesn't that surprise you? A love like that, that can reach out of the past, transform the present? He's also in the suspense episode, Pistol Shot, the Lights Out episode, Mask of the Red Death, and the Amazing Stories episode, Gershwin's Trunk. Jojo, we've got to have those songs by Wednesday. Couldn't you at least let me hear a couple of them? Listen, Logan, when I was working with Jerry, he used to show our stuff all over town before it was ready. By the time people saw the show, they thought they were seeing a revival. Now that I'm on my own, things are different. You will see the songs on Wednesday. Laurie's heard the songs. Laurie, tell the man. Uh, it, it's his best work ever, Mr. There. Webb. See? See? Well, you'll be the only cast in history to get their songs on the first day of rehearsal. Now, when he was filming the picture of Dorian Gray, he became lifelong friends with his co-star, Angela Lansbury, 
He appeared three times on her show Murder, she wrote. Jessica, can you forgive me for involving you in this? I was so afraid a single man at the ballet, with an accent no less, would be much too conspicuous, so I asked you to accompany me. Well, I'm not sure that I understand. <laughs> Thank you for helping. We have been planning this moment since I was a little girl, and I am so happy it has finally come through. Well, I'm happy for you, Natalia. But, Leo, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Of course. First, we must go to the federal authorities and ask them to seek asylum for Natalia and Alexander. And she's the one who convinced him to buy property close to hers in Ireland, where he spent most of his retirement years. If you want to call it retiring, the Guardian obituary mentions that in the 1980s, he toured extensively in his one-man play, The Son of Whistler's Mother, perfectly portraying the American artist James McNeil Whistler. Wikipedia notes that years later, a friend of his bought the painting of young Dorian Gray that was used in the film and gave it to him. No indication as to whether he may or may not have liked this gift. Now, Heard Hatfield appears in two total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next and last is None Are So Blind, episode five of season two, where he has evil designs on another aunt, this time played by Mildred Dunnock. And Heard Hatfield died in his sleep of a heart attack at a friend's home after celebrating Christmas dinner in 1998. He was 81 years old. Mildred Natwick was born in Baltimore in 1905. Her grandfather, Ole Natwick, was one of the earliest Norwegian immigrants to the United States, arriving in Wisconsin in 1847. Mildred began performing on stage at the age of 21 with the Vagabonds, a theater group in Baltimore. She later joined the University Players in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, whose performers also included at that time Henry Fonda, Margaret Sullivan, and Jimmy Stewart. She made her first appearance on Broadway in 1932 in the play Carrie Nation. Also in that cast was actor-director-playwright Josh Logan, with whom she became close and frequently collaborated in the 1930s. She didn't make her first film until she was 35, when she was cast by John Ford in The Long Voyage Home. Now, now tell me something about you, sir. Where was you born? In Norway? No. Denmark? No. Oh, then it must be Sweden. Yeah. Oh, ain't that funny? I was born there, too. Where, Miss Freeman? In Sweden. You speak Swedish. Oh, oh, no. You see, my old man and woman come here to England when I was only a baby. I'm an orphan, you know. And they were speaking English before I was old enough to learn. So I never knew Swedish. I wished I had. Ford cast her again in Three Godfathers, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and The Quiet Man. It's him I'm here about, Mrs. Talan. Is it true? It's what true? That behind me back... He's trying to steal the white of morn right from under my nose. And what concern of yours is this, Will Danaher? Concern? Concern enough. Haven't I made you a good fair offer for that same piece of land? And mine lying right next to yours? You may keep your offers. Oh, so it's true. You've sold it. No, I have not. Oh, I knew it was a dirty lie the very minute I heard it. <laughs> sure. I said to him, Packy McFarlane, you'll never make me believe that Sarah Talim will be selling white amon. <laughs> yeah. 
Why, it'd be like building a fence between your land and mine. And for a stranger to move in, says I. And what would she do be doing that for? And us so close to an understanding, you might say. So you told him all that, did you? That I did. Down at the pub, I suppose. In front of all those big ears with pints in their fists and pipes in their mouths. You may have the land, Mr. Thornton, for 600 pounds. Don't! Mildred preferred the theater to movies. According to MasterworksBroadway.com, in 1942, she played alongside Raymond Massey and Burgess Meredith in a revival of George Bernard Shaw's Candida and appeared again in that play in 1946 with Marlon Brando and Cedric Hardwick. Also in 1946, she played, as Gladys Hurlbut did 25 years earlier, though not in the same role, in John Millington Sings' The Playboy of the Western World. She gave a tour de force performance as Madame Arcadi, the medium, in Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. In 1957, she received a Tony nomination for her role in Jean Ennui's Waltz of the Toreadors. In 1963, she gained great acclaim as the bride's mother in Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park, and she reprised that role in the film four years later. That earned her an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Hello, Mother. <laughs> Hello, Mom. I can't breathe. Take it easy, Mother. I can't catch my breath. You should have rested, Mom. I did, but there were always more stairs. <laughs> Paul, help her. Uh, what's the step? More stairs? <laughs> Mother, would you like a glass of water? No, thank you, dear. I can't swallow yet. Here, sit down, Mom. Oh, Ma. <sighs> it's not that high, Mother. I know, dear. It's not bad, really. What is it, nine flights? No, it's five. We don't count the front stoop. I didn't think I'd make it. If I'd known the people on the third floor, I'd have gone to visit them. Later, she appeared in Harold Pinter's Landscape, and in 1971, she made her debut in a singing role in the musical 70 Girl 70, for which she earned a second Tony nomination. IMDb says, with only the slightest of gesture, look, or tone of voice, Mildred's characters could speak volumes, and she became an essential character player during the 1970s as an offbeat friend, relative, or elderly. In 1971, she co-starred with Helen Hayes in the ABC movie of the week, Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate, in which their characters worked together as amateur detectives. And the success of that brought about a similar team-up when they both starred in the short-lived series, The Snoop Sisters, for which Mildred won an Emmy Award. Stephen, don't be harsh with Barney. It wasn't his fault. We overpowered him. He wasn't even an accessory. Ernesto, Aunt G, you're charged with breaking and entering. That's a very serious offense. We didn't break or enter. The window was open. We were invited into the factory. It's a series that seems to be in many ways an inspiration for murder, she wrote. And Mildred was in one of those episodes, too. She also plays Rock Hudson's mother in the 1970s mystery series Macmillan and Wife. Stuart. Mother. Oh, you're looking wonderful, Stuart, considering your age. <laughs> and you've grown, too, haven't you? Either that or I've shrunk. Oh, Mother, I'm sure you haven't. You never can tell. I met this adorable plantation owner in Caracas. Bananas, I think it was, or was it coffee beans? Mother. Carlos, a dear man, but I towered over him. 
he was a little in love with me, but I never really could think of him in that way. And then one night, the drums began beating in the jungle, voodoo drums. And the next day, there was Carlos looking down on me. Mother. Now, maybe he stuffed paper in his shoes, but if you ask me, those drums were aimed at me. Mildred also appeared in the Lights Out episode, The Queen is Dead, the Tales of Tomorrow episode, Inc., 11 episodes of Suspense, an episode of You Are There, in which she played Mary Queen of Scots, the Maltese Bippy, and a final role in 1988's Dangerous Liaisons. And I can't let Mildred go without playing the famous pellet with the poison routine from the Danny Kaye film, The Court Jester. If I die, just pray that I die bravely. You will not die. You'll not have to fight him. Griswold dies as he drinks the toast. What? Listen, I have put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the figure of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle? Yes, but you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. Uh, I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what? The chalice from the palace. Hmm? It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. Does the chalice from the palace have the pellet with the poison? No, the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice. The chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see? The pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew with it. It's true. It's so easy. I can say it. Well, then you find him. Listen carefully. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Oh, the pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Good man. Just remember that. Sir Giacomo. Sir Giacomo, into your armor. And you to your place in the pavilion. Pellet with the poison... The pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle, the chalice from the palace has the true that is brewed. Uh, brew that is true. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle, the chalice from the palace has the true that is brewed. Uh, brew that is true. Uh, the chessel with the palace. Now, as for any Hitchcock connections, there's a tenuous one in that she portrays the sinister Mrs. Danvers in the 1938 radio adaptation of Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca. You can't see the sea from here, can you? No, not from this room. You can't even hear it. You'd not know the sea was anywhere near. Not from this room. I'm sorry about that. I like the sea. Mr. De Winter gave special orders in his letter that you would have this room, madam. Oh, then this was not his room originally. No, madam. He's never used the rooms in this wing before. Oh, he didn't tell me that. I... I suppose you've been at Mandalay for many years, Mrs. Danvers. Longer than anyone else. I came here when the first Mrs. De Winter was a bride. Mrs. Danvers, you know, you, you must have patience with me because this sort of life is new to me. You must just go on running things as they always have been run. I shan't want to make any changes. I'm here to carry out your orders, madam. I hope I shall do everything to your satisfaction. Can I do anything more for you now? Oh, no, thank you, no. I, I am sure I have everything. I should be very comfortable here. You've made the room so charming. I only followed out Mr. De Winter's instructions. Of course, the most beautiful rooms are in the west wing, overlooking the sea. The bedroom is twice as large as this. And the windows look down across the lawns into the sea. I suppose Mr. De Winter keeps the most beautiful rooms to show to the public. Those rooms are never shown to the public. They used to live in those rooms when Mrs. De Winter was alive. That big room I was telling you about that looks down to the sea, 
That was Mrs. De Winter's room. And, of course, her direct connection to Hitchcock is as Miss Ivy Gravely in The Trouble with Harry. Before you make your kind thoughts known to me, I should like to offer you some explanation of my sudden invitation to coffee and blueberry muffins this afternoon and my and my sitting with you here now. No, ma'am, you don't have to explain anything. You came to my aid at a moment of crisis for which I'm truly grateful. Thank you, but it's just that I owe you some reason. No, 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 I won't hear a word of it. You saw the predicament I was in with that body on my hands and all. And you shut your eyes to it in the most sporting fashion, if I must say so. Captain Wiles. Yes, ma'am? I'm trying to tell you that the reason I asked you to coffee and blueberry muffins was because I felt... Sympathy. Gratitude. But I'm the one who should be grateful. No, I was grateful. I, I am grateful. I... I'm grateful to you for burying my body. Your body? The man you thought you killed was the man I hit over the head with the leather heel of my hiking shoe. You? And with the metal cleat on the end of it. Also in that film is Mildred Dunnock, Herd Hatfield's other aunt in Herd Hatfield's other Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. Mildred Natwick never married, neither did Herd Hatfield for that matter, and she was a devout Christian scientist. And one more bit of trivia about her, her cousin was animator and cartoonist Myron Grimm Natwick, co-creator of Betty Boop. Mildred has one more Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, Miss Bracegirdle Does Her Duty, episode 18 of season three which, as I've said, is directed by Robert Stevens and based on a story by Stacey Aumonnier. And Mildred Natwick died in 1994 at the age of 89. Now, The Pie Lady gives The Perfect Murder an A, but to me, this is a very routine episode. I do like the emphasis on food and facial expressions, or place settings, in the absence of food. And the performances are all first-rate. I also like the way Paul's schemes come back to haunt him. But unlike the story, which takes his time, the episode feels rushed, and Paul's transition from satisfied house guest to despiser of decaying things seems rather forced and artificial to me. So I would place this episode in the lower third of the episodes we've seen so far. Let's begin our wrap-up with a very ungallic Alfred Hitchcock anglicizing Henri's name in applying a little retribution. As for the eventual outcome of tonight's crime, the case was later reopened and Henry arrested and convicted of violating the Pure Food and Drug Act. He had used an inferior grade of glass. There's a little more to this pre-commercial part of the outro, not on my DVD. According to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, Hitch continues with, You see, one can't be too careful about these matters. Now for a cleverly timed interlude, after which I'll rejoin you. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 3, including the episode The Perfect Crime. A Perfect Murder, The Long Voyage Home, The Quiet Man, Barefoot in the Park, King of Kings, North by Northwest, The Trouble with Harry, The Snoop Sisters, The Complete Series, Murder, She Wrote, Season 1, Twilight Zone, the complete third season, and the complete fifth season. The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. I Want to Live, 
Guys and Dolls, Naughty Marietta, and The Andy Griffith Show, The Complete First Season, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Poison in the Pestle clip from The Court Jester, the radio adaptation of Rebecca, the clip from The Picture of Dorian Gray, the Amazing Stories episode, Gershwin's Trunk, the Macmillan and Wife episode, Love, Honor, and Swindle, the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode, City Beneath the Sea, the Wild Wild West episode, The Night of the Man-Eating House, the Mrs. Butterworth commercial, and the Charles Bennett clip from Omnibus Hitchcock are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject heading. You can also leave me a review on iTunes. I haven't gotten too many of those, and I don't usually look. But I did get one not too long ago from J. David Rogan, and a little bit before that from Snookfan, though I think I might have mentioned Snookfan before. So I thank both of them for giving me very nice reviews. Now, just a few more things before we go. First of all, I mentioned last time that Alfred Hitchcock had written a number of short, short stories for the Henley Telegraph when he worked at W.T. Henley's Telegraph Works. I read the first of these, Gas, last time. Patrick McGilligan, in his book, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, reprints six more of these. Here's the second one, and it's entitled, The Woman's Part. Curse you! Winnie, you devil owl! Bah! He shook her off roughly, and she fell, a crumpled heap at his feet. Roy Fleming saw it all. Saw his own wife thus treated by a man who was little more than a fiend. His wife, who scarcely an hour ago had kissed him as she lingered caressingly over the dainty cradle cot where the center of their universe lay sleeping, scarcely an hour ago. And now he saw her, the prostrate object of another man's scorn, the discarded plaything of a villain's brutish passion. She rose to her knees and stretched her delicate white arms in passionate appeal toward the man who had spurned her. Arnold, don't you understand? You never really cared for her. It was a moment's fancy, a madness, and will pass away. It is I you love. Think of those days in Paris. Do you remember when we went away together, Arnold, you and I, and forgot everything? How we went down the river, drifting with the stream as it wound its way like a coil of silver across the peaceful pasture lands. Oh, the scent of the May and lilac blossoms that morning the songs of the birds, the joy of watching the swallows sweeping across the river before us. Arnold, you have not forgotten. It was the first day you kissed me, hidden in that sheltered sweetness where only the rippling sunbeams moved upon the myrtle-tinted stream. Arnold, you have not forgotten. The man crossed the room and leaned upon a table, not far from where she crouched, gazing down at her with a look from which she shrank away. No, he said bitterly. I have never forgotten. Still kneeling, she moved nearer and laid a trembling hand on his knee. Arnold, don't you understand? I must leave England at once. I must go into hiding somewhere, anywhere, a long way from here. I killed her, Arnold, for your sake. I killed her because she had taken you from me. They will call it murder, but if only you will come with me, I do not care. In a new country, we will begin all over again, together, you and I. Roy Fleming saw and heard it all. 
This abandoned murderess was the woman who had sworn to love and honor him until death should part them. So this was, yes, and more than that. But Roy made no movement. Was he adamant? Had the horror of the scene stunned him? Or was it just that he realized his own impotence? The man she called Arnold raised her suddenly and drew her to him in a passionate embrace. There is something in your eyes, he said fiercely, that would scare off most men. It's there now, and it's one of the things that make me want you. You are right, Winnie. I am ready. We will go to Ostend by the early morning boat and seek a hiding place from there. She nestled close to him, and their lips met in a long, sobbing kiss. And still Roy Fleming gave no sign, raised no hand to defend his wife's honor, uttered no word of denunciation, sought no vengeance against the man who had stolen her affections. Was it that he did not care? No, not that, only... Don't you realize? He was in the second row of the stalls. Patrick McGilligan explains... The woman's part makes sense once it's clear that it's written from the point of view of a husband watching his actress wife perform on stage. The stalls were the front stalls of a theater downstairs, as against the less expensive circle upstairs. The husband is taking the woman's part, thinking about his wife as he watches her emote, as Hitchcock often took the woman's part in his films, adopting her point of view with his camera. The husband is remembering his wife at home before the performance, gazing down maternally at their child, even as he finds himself captivated by her transformation on stage, where she is impersonating an adulteress and murderess. Watching his wife as she confesses to the first Hitchcock murder, albeit one that takes place entirely within the frame of a proscenium, the husband finds his emotions strangely divided and aroused. And Patrick McGilligan also points out that this one was signed Hitch and Company, the first record of Hitchcock teaming up with closet collaborators. Also last time, we looked at The Great Day, directed by Hugh Ford, the first film for which Hitchcock did titles. His second film was The Call of Youth, also directed by Hugh Ford. A newspaper ad from the time called The Call of Youth, a joyous romance of life's springtime, filmed in the beauty and charm of rural England and played by a great English cast with Malcolm Cherry, who played the millionaire. This is from the review in Variety. A millionaire takes a great interest in the daughter of a family in grave financial trouble. His attentions are a godsend to them, for in them they see their way out and a return to prosperity. After a while, however, it becomes clear that he wishes to marry the other girl, a poor relation, and not the one who originally attracted him. This girl has openly expressed a wish to marry him in order to relieve the family of their embarrassments. She consents, therefore, to marry the millionaire, although she is already in love with the son of the family who is striving to meet his father's debts. The millionaire, to make things certain, sends her lover to an unhealthy part of Africa and proceeds with his wooing. Reaction sets in. She begins to shrink from his touch and is worried by visions of her true love. She turns the wealthy lover down, and he, apparently being one of those big-hearted men, despite his millions, proceeds to Africa, rescues the boy from his uncomfortable position, and brings him back. The review states that this production is from an original story by Henry Arthur Jones. It possesses little vitality, and its charm rests in the real beautiful outside locations, which have been chosen from some of the most delightful parts of Devon. And this is from the review in The Times. 
We believe that Mr. Henry Arthur Jones has written The Call of Youth especially for the screen, and if so, it is an interesting proof that the dramatist is at last beginning to realize that the screen may have much in store for him if he cares to make full use of the new method of interpretation of his ideas. Very wisely, he has evolved quite a simple story of the girl who really loves a young man but gives her hand to an older suitor in the belief that it will help her parents out of a very difficult financial situation. On the morning of her marriage, however, the girl realizes that the call of youth is too strong, and she visits her prospective husband's rooms, begs to be released from her promise, and proves again the truth of the old superstition, that it is unlucky to meet your bride on the day of the wedding, until she reaches the altar. With extraordinary magnanimity, he releases her, takes the blame on himself, and promptly sets out to the other end of the world to bring youth together. He succeeds in his quest, but frankly, we think most of the sympathy will be for middle age, particularly when it is so charmingly interpreted as it is by Mr. Malcolm Cherry. His performance is full of sympathetic touches, which show him to be as good an actor on the screen as on the stage, and he receives excellent support from Miss Mary Glynn and Mr. Jack Hobbs as the representatives of the younger generation. The Call of Youth should tempt Mr. Henry Arnold Jones to try his hand again, and if it induces other playwrights to follow his example, so much the better. The Call of Youth, like the Great Day, is lost. And finally, here's another installment of... Ingrid, it's only a movie. Clips I want to play that I can find no reason to play. This time, like last time, it's Charles Bennett from the omnibus Hitchcock BBC production. And he had this enormous car, and instead of having the windows closed, he had them glued down so that nobody could open them because he hated fresh air. Next time, episode number 25, There Was an Old Woman, starring Estelle Winwood. Back to Hitch to finish. I'll read the first line, which is not on my DVD, and he'll pick it up from there. And with that delightful bit of Americana, we reluctantly drop our curtain. We shall have our next performance of another play one week from tonight. Oh, yes. Normally, I detest sentimentality, but I must leave you with this little thought for the day. Never turn your back on a friend. Good night. And he exits, the knife still stuck in his back. <laughs> <laughs>